My name is Philip Ovedia. I am a heart surgeon with two kids, and I want Peak 40 Health. Welcome to Peak 40, the podcast that brings you the tips, tactics, and stories for living your best life in midlife. If you're in your mid-30s to 50s, Peak 40 is the place to get actionable advice on the nuances of nutrition, training, recovery, and mindset in midlife. For the full experience and other valuable resources, register for the Peak 40 weekly newsletter at drbubs.com forward slash peak 40 to enhance your lifestyle and start making midlife your best life. Hey everyone, welcome to season two of the Peak 40 podcast. I'm your host, Mark Bubs, and in season two, we're going to be shifting gears a little bit and talking all about the conditions, the syndromes, the challenges and problems that we experience in midlife. And with the help of expert doctors, researchers and practitioners provide you with some actionable insights to help to address them. My guest today in episode number one of season two is Dr. Philip Ovedia, heart surgeon and author of the new book, Stay Off My Operating Table. In this episode, Dr. Ovedia is going to talk about the connection between metabolic health and your risk of heart disease and heart attack. He's going to outline five key biomarkers to assess your metabolic health. He'll also touch on how LDL cholesterol stacks up as a risk factor compared to something like poor metabolic health. And finally, he'll share his journey, his story of losing over 100 pounds and keeping it off by changing his nutrition, upgrading his movement, and touching on some of these lifestyle factors like stress and sleep. Lots of great insights here from Dr. Ovidia in this episode, so I hope you enjoy. Before we get started, if you're looking to improve your movement, your mobility, and reduce pain, check out our free five-day mobility course. In less than 60 seconds a day, you can start to reduce pain, move more freely, and get back to the activities that you love and enjoy. Just head over to drbubs.com forward slash peak 40, scroll down to the free five-day mobility course, and you're all set to go. Doc, listen, I really appreciate you uh, covering us some time today. Thanks for having me on, Mark. Excited to have this conversation with you and your audience. Tremendous. Well, maybe we can start things off here with you telling the listeners a little bit more about your background and your journey to becoming a heart surgeon. Sure thing. Uh, so I have now been in practice as a heart surgeon for over 15 years. Um, my uh, training, you know, was pretty traditional. I, uh, you know, went through college and medical school and then did a uh, residency first in a training program, first in general surgery. And then after that decided, you know, that cardiac surgery was kind of my passion. Um, the combination of the technical expertise that's involved in it, as well as the physiology of the heart and the, you know, circulatory system was most interesting to me. So uh, I went on to complete a, a fellowship in uh, cardiac surgery. And as I said, I've now been in practice as a uh, cardiac surgeon for over 15 years. Amazing. Well, listen, I just uh, finished your book, Stay Off My Operating Table, which was, uh, you know, tremendous. And at, at the start of the book, you, you share a really nice anecdote around obviously being with a patient and the, this patient having uh, being in the emergency uh, department, emergency room from an, a cardiac events and a the things that are going through your mind and the, just the realities of it, um, you know, it's, it's really striking. Could you talk us through what, what that's like? 
Yeah, sure thing. You know, I think the uh, vignette that I opened the book with uh, is a powerful one and an unfortunate one. Uh, it is that of a young lady uh, in her late 30s who developed a uh, devastating uh, cardiac condition uh, known as an aortic dissection. So that's actually a tear in the blood vessel of the, uh, you know, leading out from the heart. And we know that that condition carries a very high mortality rate with it. Many patients die before they even get to the hospital. And when they get to the hospital, it is one of those true surgical emergencies where surgery is really the only option to fix it. Um, but it is a high risk surgery. And unfortunately, you know, despite all the advances we've made in heart surgery, uh, that condition in particular still carries with it a pretty significant mortality. And unfortunately, that patient was not able to be saved. Uh, you know, my team and I worked well through the night uh, for, you know, 12 hours plus to try and save her, but just couldn't save her. Um, and, you know, it was really another example of something that had been, you know, building uh, within me, something that I had increasingly come to recognize in that, you know, every patient essentially that ends up on my operating table uh, has been failed by the medical system. Most of the problems that lead to people requiring heart surgery are preventable, uh, primarily, you know, with diet and lifestyle interventions. And the medical system has just evolved in such a way these days that uh, we, we've lost that, you know, message that these conditions can be prevented because ultimately, no matter how good I am as a heart surgeon, no matter how good all the other heart surgeons are out there, we can never make the patients as good as if they never needed the operation in the first place. So that is a new focus within my career. And you know, we can talk a little bit about how my personal story uh, plays into what has led me to this point. Uh, but now, you know, while I continue to work as a heart surgeon, while I, I feel blessed to be able to offer that to the people who need it, I would much rather educate people and help them to not need the heart surgery and to stay off my operating table. 100%. And, you know, as you know, metabolic health is obviously a key part of this whole story. And with two thirds of the population, not just in the US, but Canada, the UK, other places, we see are overweight or obese, we see rates of diabetes, pre-diabetes on the rise. Could you walk us through why, you know, that connection between weight gain, high blood sugars, and how this is really some of the driving factors behind why we're folks are struggling with metabolic health? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the most recent uh, statistics that we have available uh, for the United States, uh, which come from the 2016 uh, data, very large study that's called NHANES, uh, that looks at people's uh, nutrition and, you know, outcomes, uh, shows us that actually 88% of the adults in the United States are not metabolically healthy. They cannot meet all the markers of good metabolic health. And, you know, while obesity is sort of a, you know, effect or a symptom of poor metabolic health, it's also important for people to understand that not being obese in no way guarantees that you're not metabolically healthy. Um, so while, you know, overall only 12% of adults in the United States are metabolically healthy, when you look at the group within that study that was not obese, they were normal weight or underweight, actually about 60% of them were not metabolically healthy either. 
so there was a pretty significant chance of not being metabolically healthy, even if you are a normal weight. And that's a very important point that I like to get forward to people. You can't just assume that you are metabolically healthy because you are not overweight. And unfortunately, both physicians and patients make that mistake. And you know, the reality is, is that plenty of, you know, not overweight people make it onto my operating room table. Now, certainly being obese and overweight makes it much more likely that you are not metabolically healthy, about a 92% chance, uh, I'm sorry, about a 95% chance of not being metabolically healthy if you are overweight or obese. Um, but, you know, again, you can't just assume it just because you're not overweight or obese. And the reason that it's so important is that we know that metabolic disease, metabolic syndrome is the biggest rat risk factor for heart disease and actually for many of the chronic diseases that plague our society. Things like diabetes, many forms of cancer, Alzheimer's disease, um, all of these have been tied to poor metabolic health. Uh, and, you know, it's therefore, you know, very important that people focus on their metabolic health and determine if they are metabolically healthy and if they're not, correct that. Uh, but unfortunately, the healthcare system just largely ignores that problem. Yeah, it's amazing how, you know, as you mentioned, even docs in a busy practice, general practitioners, if someone's, you know, thinner or what appear to be a, not, a more ideal weight, and it can sometimes fly under the radar. It's often surprising when people realize that places like India are leaders and, you know, have the highest rates of things like type 2 diabetes, where we would think that, again, that with, with the population not being as obese as other populations, that they should be perhaps lower down that ranking. So, you know, that idea of yeah, being thin on the outside, but, uh, you know, fat on the inside, that TOFI um, type is definitely something to keep our eyes out for. And if we zoom out to 30,000 feet, when we look at, you know, what we're eating, when we look at the ultra processed food that's in our food environment, that's really calorically dense, that's nutrient poor, um, you know, how much is of this is playing into the story around driving a lot of the, the weight gain and the glucose dysregulation and ultimately poor metabolic health? Yeah, I think that the, you know, what we eat is the primary determinant of our health and of our metabolic health. And, you know, we see exactly that, you know, as these processed foods have been introduced and become more prominent in our food supply. Uh, the rates of metabolic disease skyrocket. Uh, you know, we certainly see this, uh, you know, in the United States and the westernized countries, um, you know, dating back to the 1950s, 1960s, as these foods became commonplace. And then we can see it today in, you know, populations that were kind of more disconnected, more ancestral populations, as they get introduced to the Western diet and the processed foods that come along with it, clearly, you know, they start to develop metabolic disease in significant amounts. Uh, so, you know, there is some debate about what particular aspect of these processed foods might be causing the damage. There's obviously the, the camp that believes that it's the carbohydrates and specifically the more processed carbohydrates. There are other people who talk about, you know, the seed and the vegetable oils. Um, and, and quite honestly, I think there's good evidence for both. Uh, but the reality is, is that you never really get one or the other. They're always combined in these processed foods. And that seems to be uniquely damaging to our metabolic health. 
Yeah, it is amazing when you look at like Canada, again, the UK, the US, we're all over 50% of, of household spendings on ultra processed food. And we often hear how the Mediterranean diet is often cited as one of the gold standards. And when you, if you were to just take a train from London to Paris, all of a sudden it drops from 50 to 40, 14% only is, is ultra processed food. And again, like 13, 14% in Italy. And so these countries are just eating a lot more real food, which is a huge benefit to not only you know, hitting your protein targets, getting more vegetables in and fiber, et cetera. Um, but circling back to metabolic health. So patients are coming into their doctors. The focus is still largely driven on LDL, right? Uh, patients LDL number is going to be the, the number that docs are looking at to be able to, to assess, you know, risk for a patient. And I think this is where there's sometimes some confusion because whilst it is, you know, a key driver of, of atherosclerosis, you know, there's also some different camps here that are suggesting that we need to look at more markers to get a better assessment. Can you give us, um, you know, your take on, on the one side we have, you know, it's the LDL stupid, just drive it down. And the other side we have, well, let's look at more markers to be able to give ourselves a better reflection of what's going on. Yeah. I, I think, you know, there are a couple of things to unpack. There are a couple of things that I oftentimes discuss with my patients. So, you know, LDL cholesterol, uh, so-called bad cholesterol has traditionally been associated with increased risk of heart disease, of cardiovascular disease. You know, and when you really look at the data behind that, that association is pretty weak. You know, even in the studies that, you know, kind of best demonstrate this relationship, the increased risk associated to having an elevated LDL level uh, over the baseline of cardiovascular disease is only about you know 1.4x basically, uh, so you know maybe a 40% increase. Yep. When you look at those same studies or the similar studies that also measure for metabolic disease, most commonly looked at with insulin resistance, that risk associated with insulin resistance and heart disease is 6x. So it's a much more powerful risk factor for heart disease, even if you accept all the LDL data as it is and you know, there's much reason not to accept it as it is. Furthermore, what I always explain to patients is that, you know, LDL cholesterol hasn't really been tied to any other diseases uh, besides cardiovascular disease, whereas metabolic syndrome, again, as we mentioned earlier, has been tied to many forms of cancer, Alzheimer's disease, type two diabetes, high blood pressure, you know, all of these other conditions that also, you know, lead to people, uh, you know, being ill and dying ultimately. So, you know, whether or not you want to accept that relationship between LDL cholesterol and heart disease, and again, there's many reasons to question that relationship, but even if you accept that relationship, there's no getting around the fact that metabolic health is a more important predictor. And if we focused on metabolic health, I think we could have a much greater impact on heart disease because the other you know, kind of side of this discussion that I point out to people is we have now been focused on LDL cholesterol as the primary cause of heart disease for 40 plus years. Statins, you know, LDL lowering medications have been the most commonly prescribed class of medications for the past, you know, 30 years. And we have not made a meaningful impact on the incidence of heart disease. Heart disease remains the number one killer in the United States and worldwide. And it's not even close. You know, it, it is 
it is number one by a five, by a wide margin. And as I said, we haven't made a meaningful impact on that, despite our focus on LDL cholesterol. So, you know, a logical person is going to look at that and say, we have to start questioning, you know, the LDL narrative. We have to start looking at other possible issues, at least. Um, and we can accept or not accept LDL, but at least we need to be considering other things. And I think metabolic health is the primary other thing that we should be looking at. 100%. I mean, it's a great way to couch it as well to even potentially some docs that are a bit resistant or really dependent on the LDL side of things, because as you said, it's, we're just getting more benefits. So why not be trying to improve? And, and to your point, it really is the driving factor because it's connected to so many other conditions. And so, you know, for people listening in, you outline some nice markers in the book, you know, markers that I use in practice as well, which are, you know, quite straightforward in a sense, patients will sort of understand them quite well. Can we start with waist circumference? You know, what, what kind of numbers are we aiming for and then why well, is that important? Yeah. So, you know, there are five primary measurements that we use to determine metabolic health. Um, and these were the five measurements used in that study that I referred to earlier, showing that 88% of us are not metabolically healthy. Uh, waist circumference is the first one. Um, very easy. You can measure it at home. You just take a tape measure um, about, you know, a little bit above your belly button. Best to measure it first thing in the morning. And if you are a man, you want that to be less than 40 inches. Uh, if you are a woman, you want it to be less than 35 inches. And, um, you know, the reason that's such an important marker is it's a reflection of uh, what we call your visceral fat level. The fat that is around your organs within your belly, within your abdomen, uh, and that fat in particular uh, is a driver of metabolic disease. Uh, so, you know, that kind of gets at that problem of, you know, POFI, like we talked about, thin on the outside, fat on the inside. Uh, it gets around the weight issue um, because, you know, you can be normal or underweight and still have a, an enlarged waist circumference. Uh, and, you know, this is actually in and of itself, one of the best single predictors of metabolic health is your waist circumference. Yeah, the great marker. And, you know, with that white adipose tissue being so pro-inflammatory, yeah, it's a real clear sign that, hey, just as you mentioned, regardless if you're technically overweight, if you've got belly fat, then we know that there's going to be likely some, some issues going on. What about uh, some other markers, blood sugar levels? Talk to me about some targets there for blood sugar fasting yeah. glucose levels. Um, so blood sugar levels, you know, the goal there is for with, for your blood, your fasting blood sugar. So, you know, eight to 12 hours fasted, the amount of uh, sugar, the amount of glucose in your blood, you want that to be under a hundred uh, milligrams per deciliter. These are the U S units. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, that needs to be without the use of glucose lowering medications. So if you've already been diagnosed with type two diabetes and started on medications to lower your blood glucose, that is an indicator that you are not metabolically healthy. The other, um, measurements we look at, um, there are two other measurements we look at from your blood work. Those are both from your cholesterol panel. But importantly, it is not the LDL cholesterol that we talked about earlier. It's the other two, you know, measurements that are commonly on a cholesterol panel, your HDL, your so-called good cholesterol. And as the nickname implies, you know, the higher that is, the better. Uh, so if you are a woman, you want that to be over 50 
uh, again, US units, milligrams per deciliter. If you were male, you want that to be over 40. And then we look at your triglyceride level um, and that the lower, the better. And the official metric for that is under 150 milligrams per deciliter. I think that's a little generous, but um, either way, you know, that's the official metric. And the final measurement we look at to get our five measurements of metabolic health is your blood pressure. And you want that to be less than 130 over 85. And that again, needs to be without the use of medications. What most physicians fail to recognize, what most people fail to recognize is that high blood pressure is one of the hallmarks of poor metabolic health. It's oftentimes the first sign that's going to be obvious. And yet when you go to your doctor, and they diagnose you with high blood pressure, it is exceedingly rare that they are going to talk about metabolic health or recognize it as uh, part of metabolic health. And that's just one of the obvious, you know, symptoms of what's wrong with our medical system these days. I was just going to say, Doc, with a lot of male clients kind of downtown Toronto, central London, that's often the one that is a little elevated and it's often the one that gets medicated. And then there's almost no conversation after that and we can already see some of these other markers that you mentioned, you know, maybe the waist is starting to come up around 40, the glucose levels are starting to rise up and we sort of just ignore it or, or even wait rather than taking action. Is that sounds like something that you see as, as well? Yeah, I think oftentimes the problem is we're, you know, in the healthcare system as physicians, we're not connecting those dots properly. You know, uh, we really stop at, you know, here is a problem, high blood pressure. Here is how we treat it with medication. And we don't think about those underlying causes. And, you know, we don't, you know, look at uh, those metrics, you know, as a group, uh, we might recognize that the blood glucose is elevated, and we might recognize that the patient has high blood pressure, but we don't put those together to say there's a common, you know, root cause here, uh, poor metabolic health. And I think that is one of the failings, one of the biggest failings of the medical system these days. And do you think part of that is just the amount of time that we have with patients now or that docs would have with patients when they come in and just in terms of being able to educate and whatnot, or is it you know, the, the training in the past? What are your thoughts on some of the underlying reasons why? Yeah, I think it is a time and an educational uh, factor. I think, uh, you know, the way that the healthcare system is set up, you know, especially here in the United States, but I know it's similar, you know, in Canada and the UK, uh, you know, there are too many sick people, quite honestly, and not enough doctors to take care of them. Uh, so, you know, doctors are so busy taking care of sick people that they have lost focus on keeping people healthy. And again, you know, educational system gets in the way as well. You know, we really don't get taught to focus on metabolic health, on, you know, what we eat as a determinant of our health and preventative efforts uh, to keep people healthy, we get educated as physicians on how to take care of sick people. Uh, so, you know, all of those things have kind of conspired to get the healthcare system where it is. And quite frankly, you know, most physicians are just trapped within that system. You know, understand that physicians want to help patients. They want to do their best to help patients. They just don't have the knowledge around this uh, to be able to, uh, properly educate people. And I can say that based on my experience, you know, I had to basically go outside the system to get this information. 
you know, I learned this information from many non-physicians. Uh, you know, my journey um, really started um, with a, uh, you know, an author, a scientific uh, journalist. His name is Gary Taubes. Uh, probably many in your audience are familiar with him. Um, but, you know, he was the first one to introduce me to these concepts. And then I had to go back and say, why didn't I learn this in medical school? Why have I been a heart surgeon, you know, at that time for over 10 years and never really heard these concepts? Yeah, it is a, it's an amazing thing to see how much nutrition's come in the last sort of 20 years and how mainstream it is now. And to be able to get that information and, you know, a lot of Gary's work, tremendous work, a big San Antonio Spurs fan, which is, uh, um, but yeah, and, and so great to hear that your story and in the book as well, you obviously give some great solutions. One of the things I like, and, you know, one of the things we try to, to coach our clients is around, you know, principles over strategies. If we understand how it works, we can pick on, you can select different strategies to address the challenge. And, you know, you talk about systems versus goals in the book, which I love. Can you, you know, share that observe, orient, decide, and act because it's it's something that I'm sure you see when clients get get stressed or get frustrated with their progress. We're not engaging in this type of system, are we? Right, exactly. So, you know, in the book, I outlined seven principles in metabolic health, and the first one, uh, and I think the most important one, is that you need to think of your health as a system, not as a goal. I think far too often we are focused on the short-term goals. You know, if someone comes to me and they say, I want to lose 20 pounds. And, you know, one of two things is going to happen. Uh, that person is going to, you know, usually restrict their, what they do in some way to, you know, lose 20 pounds. And when they lose the 20 pounds, they're going to say, great, I can go back to what I was doing before. Uh, you know, I can't, because they can't maintain that restriction any longer. Or, you know, more commonly, honestly, they don't lose the 20 pounds. Losing 20 pounds is hard. And they get frustrated and they say, well, I might as well give up on what I'm doing because it's not yeah. working. And, you know, they don't maintain it. Instead, what I try and get my clients to understand, and, you know, I hope that this comes through to people that are reading the book, is that you need to think of your health as an overall system. You need to say to yourself, I want to be metabolically healthy. And I'm going to find the habits that support me being metabolically healthy. And, um, you know, the uh, OODA acronym, O-O-D-A, uh, is uh, one that I have found useful, you know, borrowed from other areas, but uh, I think it's applicable to our health. And uh, it's observe, orient, decide, and act. Uh, so, you know, first you need to kind of observe where you're at. You need to orient yourself to, you know, uh, what are the options sort of around you? And then you need to make a decision about what you're going to change, uh, you know, what habits you're going to adopt and what habits you're going to get rid of. And then you need to act on those decisions. And importantly, UDA is always described as a loop because then you need to start over again mm -hmm. and you need to reabsorb, you know, what effect did you get and reorient. And if it's not, you know, getting you where you want to be, you need to, you know, go through the decision and act again. Uh, and you just kind of keep doing that until you're, you know, really getting to where you want to be. But I think that overall mindset of thinking of your health as a system, I want to be metabolically healthy, I'm going to find the habits that support that um, is the, you know, is the best first step to take. 
because all of those outcomes that we're looking for, wanting to lose the weight, wanting to avoid chronic diseases, wanting to stay off my operating table, come from being metabolically healthy. So when we focus on the habits that support metabolic health, we're going to get those other, you know, kind of short-term goals, those other outcomes that we're looking for. Yeah, it's a great, you know, that idea of zooming up to 30,000 feet to sort of observe the situation as a as a third party almost, because people tend to, you know, it's tough when you're in the in the thick of things to really be able to notice the habits and the things that have gone um, awry. And, you know, once you can do that, just as you point out with the kind of orienting yourself, you know, understanding a, an individual, understanding their values and what's important to them really helps to orient them to, to the engage. In, and as you, you know, talk about here, deciding and acting. And so, um, you know, that's, that's terrific. And if we pivot here a little bit to talk about, you know, exercise is still a component where, you know, aerobic fitness, building strength in particular um, for longevity is, is, a, is a key indicator, which I people might not appreciate something like even grip strength is a, is a good reflection of how well we're aging. Can you talk a bit about strength and, and longevity and, and metabolic health? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, one of the principles that I outline in the book as, you know, uh, as a pillar of metabolic health, I frame it as move. Uh, and so I don't specifically say exercise, and that's very intentional. You know, I think for most people, uh, they need to focus on just moving more. Uh, and, you know, I give the sort of classic example that people, you know, think that you need to go to the gym for an hour, let's say a day. And a lot of people that do that, they go to the gym for the hour of the day, and then they sit around doing essentially nothing the rest of their day. And you would get a lot more, you know, kind of bang for your buck, a lot more, you know, effect if you just moved more throughout the day. And these can be simple things like, you know, taking a 10 minute walk after you eat, uh, you know, using a stand up desk instead of sitting, uh, you know, it, walking it, meetings, the whole, yeah, you know, uh, parking further away, not taking the elevator, you know, those types of habits. And if you just incorporate more movement throughout the day, uh, you're going to get great effect from that. If you are going to do dedicated exercise sessions, you know, the kind of debate that always goes on is, you know, cardio versus versus resistance exercise. Um, and, you know, since most people have limited time, I think, and the data would support that resistance exercise is a more effective use of your time. Because we have very good studies showing that, you know, one of the best predictors of longevity, uh, and not only how long you live, but also the quality of your life as you age, is building and maintaining muscle mass. And you mentioned grip strength. It's a simple test that can be done. And for instance, you know, in my area of expertise, heart surgery, uh, grip strength has been shown to be one of the best predictors of surviving heart surgery and, you know, how long you live after having heart surgery. That's fascinating. Isn't it? Yeah, it really is that these simple measurements. Uh, so I always tell people, you know, that your priority when you're exercising should be building and maintaining muscle. That can be something as simple as body weight exercises, you know, things like push-ups, pull-ups, and squats, which can be done basically with, you know, minimal or no equipment, uh, uh, can be very effective. 
Um, you know, I personally, I travel a lot, so I need something that I can kind of bring with me and I find resistance bands, uh, you know, to be a great tool. And, you know, I do about a 15 minute workout with them, uh, you know, uh, five to six times a week. And that's it that's effective at building and maintaining muscle. You know, I'm not going to become a, uh, you know, physique champion with that. Uh, but I'm going to maintain muscle as I age and that's, you know, my main goal. And finally around cardio, I tell people, if you then have extra time and you enjoy cardio, you know, feel free. Uh, but realize that cardio in and of itself, uh, is not going to be enough you know, for people who need to lose weight, we have plenty of data showing that, you know, the old adage that you can't outrun, you know, your fork or you can't out exercise a bad diet is very much true. Um, that doesn't mean that cardio isn't beneficial. It's just that, you know, it, it really, uh, I think is kind of lowest on the priority scale when you're managing your time around exercise. Yeah. I mean, some great points there. I mean, it is amazing to see that our daily movement, right? That non-exercise activity thermogenesis, just the daily movement is actually a better predictor of maintaining the weight than even all the exercise, as you mentioned, going to the gym. So that's, you know, it's great to be able to build that into one's routine. Is it, you know, parking further away, taking some walks to go get your coffee or or a meeting? Uh, Those are all tremendous. And when we look at muscle, it is just mind blowing to see that whether it's leg strength, grip strength, total muscle mass, that connection to longevity. So um, and as you point out, just to be able to survive a heart surgery, grip strength being such a, a key indicator reinforces what you're saying around metabolic health, which is, which is pretty darn cool. Um, and so doc, tell us a little bit more about to circling back to, to your story. You know, when did you start to, when you were in, starting to adjust your diet or, you know, adjust the exercise, when did it, it all start to come together for you that this is really a powerful tool to be able to help your patients? Yeah. So, you know, I had struggled my entire life with obesity. Um, I was overweight as a child. um, And that was despite, you know, being very active and, you know, being raised in a family that very much followed the, you know, dietary advice, the U.S. dietary guidelines. Um, I have a uh, older brother who is a type one diabetic. So we avoided sugar in the house, um, you know, pretty uh, strictly. And we, you know, ate all the low fat products, you know, margarine instead of butter and and skim milk instead of milk on our, you know, on our whole grain cereal every morning. And so despite that, I was always overweight, uh, became more and more obese uh, throughout college and medical school. And, you know, I tried the usual things, what I had learned in medical school many times to lose weight, you know, eat less, move more, uh, eat a low fat diet. And I'd have some short term successes, but ultimately, you know, would gain back the weight and more, uh, which is a very common experience. Yeah. And finally, you know, when I started to come across the alternative ideas, uh, you know, as I said, starting with Gary Tobbs and then getting into the whole, you know, low carb, uh, you know, keto, uh, all of that stuff I went through. Um, But ultimately, what I realized was that the most important thing was eating whole real food. Um, When you eat nutritionally dense food, um, you, your body just you know, signals you to eat less, you are hungry less often. And, you know, doing that, I've been able to, you know, maintain a weight loss now of over 100 pounds for over five years. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, I say it's the, you know, the least that I've ever struggled around food and my weight. Um, So, 
Um, you know, that was sort of my personal journey. And as I went through that, I came across all this information about metabolic health. I realized how important it was to heart disease. And I realized that it would help my patients as well. And so, you know, the advice that I had been giving them that had failed me personally, and I saw fail them over and over, I finally was able to give them different advice that worked for me, worked for my patients. And, you know, that is why I've become so passionate now about spreading this message to people and to helping them understand that it is possible to remain healthy as you age. And it is possible to avoid these chronic diseases that we are told are inevitable. And even when you develop some of these diseases like type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure, they are reversible conditions. I have now worked with many, many patients that we have been able to get them off medications for type 2 diabetes, for high blood pressure, uh, and you know, truly reverse their metabolic disease, optimize their metabolic health. Uh, so, you know, we should not accept that narrative that, you know, it's inevitable that you get these. And once you get them, that there's nothing that can be done to reverse it. We can only control the, uh, you know, kind of control it with medication is what we're commonly told. Yeah. I mean, it's inspiring stuff, doc, to be able to you know, obviously lose the weight yourself. And then I'm sure like a lot of docs over the years, just become frustrated with, with patients not being able to achieve some of these outcomes. And then all of a sudden, you know, they see you do it and the advice that you provide and being able to, to the title of your book, keep them off your operating table. It's got to be a pretty inspiring thing. So I uh, appreciate you carving out some time. I know you're, you're very busy and uh, you know, where can people stay connected with your work and, and pick up the fantastic book? Sure thing. So the book is now uh, available, you know, at uh, Amazon and all the other, you know, major online platforms. It's called Stay Off My Operating Table. Uh, and I certainly encourage people to go find it. Uh, you can find my website um, at ovadiahearthealth.com, O-V-A-D-I-A, hearthealth.com. I have a telemedicine practice that I work with patients throughout the United States one-on-one uh, -on -one to uh, improve their metabolic health and prevent them from getting heart disease. And I also have a group coaching program, a membership community called the Stronger Heart Society. Uh, you can actually go to strongerhearts.co uh, directly for that, or you can go through the website. And uh, we do twice weekly meetings where we talk about the concepts of metabolic health and we support each other and help each other in a group, group coaching setting. Amazing. We'll definitely include all those links in the show notes. And Doc, again, thanks so much for the time. Thanks so much for the insights and the uh, tremendous book as well. Thanks for having me on, Mark. Thank you for listening to the Peak 40 podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. It's a very big help to the show. Got a question? Follow at Dr. Bubs on Instagram and send me a note in the comments section or hit reply to our weekly Peak 40 newsletter. Fantastic. Have a great week, everyone. See you next time. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional.